You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Good morning, Real Life on the Palouse. How's everybody doing? Good. We are going to continue our way through the Sermon on the Mount series, if you guys are okay with that. Excellent. All right. We have been working through the front third of this sermon. It can be found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he records the sermon from Jesus, and Jesus spends the front third of this sermon essentially talking about, here's the appropriate way to read Torah. Not a new way, the way it was supposed to be read from the very beginning. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish Torah, but to fulfill it. The word fulfill doesn't mean to accomplish, like it's some video game. So it was always handed to me, like Jesus accomplished the law, like he beat the video game, so now we don't have to play it anymore. No. In the Jewish world, to fulfill the law means to come put it on display. So Jesus is saying, I've come to show you what Torah was always intended to do from the day that Moses brought it down the mountain. Let me tell you the spirit of God that lies behind all of Torah. If this is true, Jesus moves into the second third of his sermon, and he's going to talk about, well, this is, if that's true, then this is the kind of people that we need to become. And so last week, Josh and Kerry talked to us about giving to the needy. And the, this idea of zedekah, say zedekah. Hebrew idea of zedekah, we say righteousness. But the Hebrew word today, and back in biblical time as well, means charity, generosity. That's what righteousness looks like in the biblical world. Not what we've picked up. See, we critique the Pharisees so much, but we fall into all those same traps. Righteousness, we think righteousness, and we think of like the song we just sang, when he shall come with trumpet sound. May I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone. And we think like, and the next line maybe doesn't help, faultless to stand before his throne. That's, that's still a good line. But we like, it, we get this idea of like dressed in his righteousness, dressed in his rightness. Righteousness is not rightness. It, the word zedeka, say zedeka. Zedeka means Generosity. So when Josh and Carrie talked about that, notice what they said. It's not if you give to the needy. It's when. When you give to the needy. Because you can't be a part of this kingdom thing. You can't, be, you can't read Torah as Jesus just instructed you to read Torah and then not give to the needy. So the very next move that Jesus makes is, if that's how you read Torah, then when you give to the needy, and we go into that part of the passage. Today, we're going to look at prayer and fasting. You guys ready? Fantastic. Here we go. Matthew chapter 6. When you pray, do not be like the upokritas. Say upokritas. Oh, come on. Say upokritas. Yeah, it starts to sound Klingon, somebody pointed out to me. Upokritas. Anyway, never mind. Uh, do not be like the upokritas, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Next. And when, whoa, whoa, hey, and when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray... Do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words, but do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. 
and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the upokritas. Say, upokritas. Do not look somber as the upokritas do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting. But only to your Father, who is unseen, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, before we jump into this passage, let's deal with a couple things of context that always seem to get in the way, and we focus on what Jesus isn't saying, rather than focusing on what Jesus might be trying to give us in this teaching. We want to get rid of some of that contextual stuff. Okay, so let's talk context for a little bit. First of all, there's this thing about secrecy. We get into this passage and everybody gets really wound up about secrecy all of a sudden, right? Like, you're not, nobody's supposed to see your walk with Jesus. Giving, nobody's allowed to see that. In fact, it's supposed to even confuse yourself because you can't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. So even your own self is like, wait, I'm what? Huh. Anyway, and, and, then, and then when you pray... And the NIV translation tried to get rid of what it used to say, and this is one case where it didn't do a very good job. The new NIV says, go into your room and shut the door. The old NIV used to say, go into your closet, which is more appropriate translation, but was even more confusing, because you and I think, the place where I keep the brooms and the vacuum cleaner? No. It's referring to their prayer closet. Let me show you your prayer closet. This is what's called a talit. Say talit. You guys going to remember all these Hebrew words? Okay, good. <laughs> This is your talit, okay? This is, by the way, what I wear all the time. You've been, unafraid, you've been afraid to ask me this whole time. These are not c connected to my belt. I'm wearing one of these with a hole cut in the middle of it like a sandwich board, and I put my clothes on around it, so that's what these hang out of this hanging over the top of me. This is what they would wear on the outside. So you wear these all the time, but if you're an Orthodox Jew, even today, and you go to, if you're in Jerusalem and you want to go to Kotel, which is the Western Wall, or if you want to go to synagogue in your town and go to worship, they would wear these to worship. This is called your prayer shawl, okay? So you wear these to, what's it called in Hebrew? Talit. See, you're going to remember something, okay? You got, you got your talit, and you wear that. It's your prayer shawl to synagogue. And then if you want to pray, you go into what's called your prayer closet. I'll show you your prayer closet. By the way, if you're standing next to me, is it obvious what I'm doing? It's not an invisibility cloak, okay? <laughs> so this whole secrecy thing, go into your closet, shut the door. Jesus' point is it's not about what people can see, it's about what's going on inside. Okay, my closet, I am either going into my Jewish superhero changing room or I'm going into my prayer closet. And it's obvious to you when I stand, when I'm standing next to Emmy, it's obvious to Emmy what I'm doing. I'm praying. Now, if I'm doing it just to be seen, if I look at the person next to me and I'm like, and there's nothing going on in the prayer closet, Jesus says that's all the reward you're going to get is the people that see you and they're like, good job. That's all the reward you're gonna get. But your prayer isn't changing you on your insides. Deep in your spiritual bones, you're not being changed. There's no reward beyond what people see. Does that make sense? Okay, this isn't about don't let anybody see you 
Because Jesus started his sermon with what commandment? Or, or teaching? Let your good deeds shine before men so that when they see them, they would what? Glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus is quite clear. Your walk is to be seen by others. Like that's, you, can't, you can't say, Jesus says, let your good deeds shine and don't let any, you can't put those two together. So whatever Jesus is saying about secrecy has to work in tandem with people need to see your walk. Okay? So let your good deeds shine, but if you're doing it just to be seen, well, all it is is surface, which leads to, let's deal with that upokritos word, right? Say upokritos. Let's not go to that yet. Upokritos. What is hypocrite is the word that gets translated. What's a hypocrite? A hypocrite is somebody who says one thing and does something else, right? Wrong. So now what the word means in the biblical word, world, it's what we've done to the word in English and our world, but it gets in the way of us understanding Jesus' teaching. Say upokritos. Upo, you guys are losing your steam here, okay? <laughs> Upokritos just means actor. That's all the word means, actor. Here's why that's important. Jesus' condemnation is not for people saying one, one thing and doing something else. Jesus' condemnation is for people that are doing it to put on a show. Listen to me. You can say one thing and do the very thing that you say and still be an upokritos. Because you can be doing it to put on an act. Who does Jesus call upokritos more than anybody else? The Pharisees. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. If there's one thing the Pharisees were not guilty of, it was saying one thing and doing something else. The Pharisees were the most devoted group you will ever find to saying and doing exactly the right thing. What Jesus critiques them on is you're doing it to show the world how devoted and pious you are. You're just an actor. It's not changing the inside of the cup. What does he say to these upokritas? Clean the inside of the cup. Because all you do is clean the outside, because that's what people can see. Clean the inside of the cup. It's the inside that produces the kind of person that God's trying to get you to become. Does this make sense? By the way, uh, just to give you some more context, just to prove our point here. Um, just got back from Turkey with some of my students a couple weeks ago and was able to take them to a lot of theaters in the world of Turkey, in the biblical world of Asia and Asia Minor. We went to a lot of theaters. Some of you just went, uh, got back with Aaron. He took you to Espendos, which is the greatest, most well-preserved theater in the ancient world. But this ancient, these ancient theaters would have the upokritos. And sometimes if you wanted to draw a large crowd to your theater... You would have a famous actor come into town. I tried to come, come up with a new name because apparently the name I'm choosing is not everybody's cup of tea, but Morgan Freeman. Okay, it worked a little better in this service. He comes into town, right? And you want everybody to be drawn to see this, this actor that comes into town. The problem is, is they don't have 4K high definition. So you don't know, Morgan Freeman's in a costume, he's got makeup on, you don't know that it's Morgan Freeman except for that silky smooth voice. Right? But you don't know. And so they announce his entrance onto the stage with a short little trumpet blast. And you know, Morgan Freeman just walked on the stage. You start elbowing, where is he? Which one is he? And it gets people's attention. What does Jesus say? When you give to the needy, don't announce it with, oh, that's what actors do. And actors are putting on a show, which is great if you're an actor, not great if you are a follower of Jesus. And when you, when you pray, don't stand on the street corners and in the synagogues like it's a stage, 
like you're an actor, if you do it as an act, that's all the rewards you're going to get. And when you fast, notice, by the way, he says, when you fast, not if you, I I hate fasting because everybody, nothing brings out like the anti-legalistic Christians like fasting. And you try to talk about it and they're all over it. They're like, you can't talk about fasting. It's supposed to be a secret. I have to talk about fasting as a religious leader, as a spiritual leader, because nobody talks about it and nobody knows how to do it. Am I right? Because Jesus said, when you fast, when was the last time you fasted? Some of you really religious actors, be careful, are going, yeah, just the last week. Okay, great. Most of us in the room have struggled with the idea of fasting. It's important for me as a leader to talk about my fast and not keep it a secret so that people know how and why and what lies behind fasting. The other thing I always hear from people is Jesus said we weren't supposed to fast. Incorrect. Jesus has a couple conversations about why his disciples don't fast, but he never commands them not to fast. In fact, he says there will come a day when you will fast. And in this teaching, he says, when you fast. So when was the last time or the next time you'll be fasting? Anyway, love to talk more about that, but we're going to keep moving. When he says, when you fast, do not disfigure your faces. Who does that? Actors, upokritos. They, they have to put on makeup because when you're sitting at a distance, I can't tell if you're smiling or la- how does that, you know, the icon for theater, where does that come from? It comes from the masks or the makeup that people would put on to accentuate their role that they're playing. Jesus says, when you fast, don't make a big, don't put on a show, go about your life as normal. Do your thing and your father will reward you. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's talk about what uh, Jesus might be getting at, not what he's not getting at. Jesus talks about three things, giving to the needy, prayer, fasting. Giving to the needy is a short little teaching. Fasting is a short little teaching. Which teaching is the large one? Prayer. He spends a bunch of time on prayer and actually gives them a model for how they're supposed to pray. In another gospel, Jesus' disciples, he probably taught on this more than once. In another gospel, his disciples come to him and say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And he gives them a very similar response. So this is Jesus teaching his disciples or his followers how to pray. Let's go look at this passage now. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive, listen to this, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. A helpful piece of context for understanding what Jesus is doing is to realize that Jesus did not make up this prayer. Jesus is quoting a common prayer that they're used to in their day called the Amidah prayer. Say Amidah. The Amidah prayer was also known as the standing prayer. You would say the Amidah prayer every day at noon. If you were in Jerusalem, you'd head on down to the Temple Mount and you would say the Amidah in groups of 10. You had to have 10 people to say the Amidah prayer. By the way, P.S., if you have groups of 10, is it a secret prayer? Nope. So you have to say the Amidah prayer in groups of 10. And as you say that prayer, when you get done, you, you say that, you say the Amidah in groups of 10. Good to see you. Nice to pray with you today. See you tomorrow. Same time, same place. All right. Catch you then. On your way, on your way out, there's a group of eight. 
So they yell at you, Jacob, Joseph, come over here. Help us, help us say the Amidah. Okay. You don't go, I already said it for the day, sorry. <laughs> See you later. No, 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 of course, you go over and you help them pray. You went all the way down to the Temple Mount, you might as well say the Amidah with as many people that need it. So you get done, good to pray with you today. You head out, you take two steps, somebody to your left says, hey, we're looking for one more, come pray with us. Okay, go over with that group of nine, so they now have a group of 10. You say the Amidah. You say the Amidah 10 or 15 times before you get off the Temple Mount together. Does that make sense? This is a very, very common prayer. Can I read to you or will you join me in reading the most ancient form of the Amidah that predates Jesus by at least a few decades? All right, do you want to say it in the Hebrew? <laughs> this group, no. Come on now, let's be adventurous. Say it with me, okay? Avinu Shabbat Shemaim. See, you can do this. Okay. Yekadesh Shimcha. Tomlich Malchuka. Yese. Bashaim. Uva Aretz. Et Lechem. Hukenu. Telanu. Hayom. Good job. Now it's your turn. Just kidding. All right, here's what you said in English. This predates Jesus by a few decades, at least. You said, our Father, the one who dwells in heaven, may your name be holied. May your kingdom come as we do your will, here on earth as it's done in heaven. Give us today the bread of today and deliver us from the evil one, cursed be he. So when Jesus, when his disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, teach us how to pray, you know what Jesus' response really is? You already know how to pray, just pray. Which has always been comforting for me. I don't know if I should admit this from the stage, but I struggle with prayer. Prayer is something that I struggle with. I know some of you in the room just love to pray. You're drawn to the prayer space. For me, I struggle, probably because of my cerebral nature, I just my theology, everything just tries to get in the way. I've always found this passage comforting because his disciples come and they're like, Jesus, is there some unique, newfangled kingdom way to pray? And he says, no, pray. Just show up and pray. You, you know how to pray, just do it. And there are days when I don't, I don't know if I should, and I just pray. And there are days where I don't feel like praying. You know what I do? I pray. Not to put on a show, but because I want prayer to change me on the insides. Does that make sense? So there, anyway, I, I find that to be stupid. But there is one thing that Jesus does tweak about a prayer that they're used to and they say every single day. There's something that Jesus adds. I'll read the ancient one again and you tell me what, what's missing from the ancient prayer that Jesus added, okay? Our Father, the one who dwells in heaven, May your name be holied. May your kingdom come as we do your will here on earth as it's done in heaven. Give us today the bread of today and deliver us from the evil one. Cursed be he. What's missing? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. There, now, shortly following Jesus, the Amidah prayer is still said today, by the way. It's evolved over the course of 2,000 years. Here's the one that comes from about the first century BC. The one that's said today is about a page and a half to two pages long. So it has evolved and they have elaborated on the prayer and added to it. Does that make sense? To this day, there's one part that Jesus added that never has made it into the Amidah prayer that I've ever found in 2,000 years worth of Amidah searching. Okay. Very quickly, they did add a phrase that said, God, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our trespasses. But the one piece that has never made it into the Amidah 
is as we forgive others. To this day, there is no portion of the Amidah that calls on us to participate in the work of forgiveness. To this day, that remains a scandalous part of Jesus's teaching that you and I have heard so much we've taken for granted. Because in a Jewish world, especially in the days of Jesus, forgiveness is whose job? God's job. So I pray that God would forgive me and I even pray that God would forgive you. And I pray that God would forgive my, energy, my, and my enemies. And I even believe that God will forgive my enemies. But that's God's job. That's God's job. So I pray that he does, that he forgives me. I pray that he forgives his enemies, but I don't forgive my enemies. I hope that God forgives. It's between them and God. It's not between them and me. Jesus says, if you want to pray, may we do your will here on earth as it's done in heaven. You want to engage in the work of tikkun olam. Say tikkun olam. Means the repairing of the world. You want to join God in repairing the world and putting the world back together? Jesus says the very first thing you're going to have to learn is how to participate with God in the act of forgiveness. Because if you are going to engage the work of the kingdom, you are going to have to be made new on your insides, not on the surface. You see, forgiveness is one of these things that can hide underneath. Like I can look at Carrie and I don't know if Carrie's forgiving anybody. She can look good, like she can have something against me. She can put a smile on her face. She can shake my hand every week that I come in here. And she can be an upokritas the whole time. I can't tell. Forgiveness has to be something that's going on inside of her. Something that's making her new into a new kind of person because she's engaging in the work of tikkun olam. That, brothers and sisters, is more scant. By the way, what is it that Jesus says right after he teaches them how to pray? Like, what's the, of all the prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Forgive us our debt, or give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Of all of that theological stuff, what does Jesus focus on next? I'm telling you, he said that prayer to stun them about forgiveness. Because if you forgive, the next verse, if you forgive your brother, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive them. The call of this teaching is not about secrecy. It's not about all this stuff. It's about you cannot be about the surface. You have to be about what's real and true on your insides. So I want to close by talking about forgiveness. But before I do, it's very important to talk about what forgiveness is not. Because I can't tell you how many times forgiveness has been used in the church to keep people in destructive and abusive situations. Do you hear me? So let me talk for a moment about what forgiveness is not before we talk about what forgiveness is. First of all, forgiveness is not saying the wrong doesn't matter or it's trivial. Sometimes the wrong is trivial. Sometimes it's a small thing. Forgive and forget. And you can just get on with it, right? But sometimes we have been hurt, wounded, and abused deeply. To talk about forgiveness is not just be like, oh, you know, just forgive. Just forgive. No, 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 no. What happened to you matters and it's not a little deal. Am I speaking clearly? All right. I'm not sure. I think three of you. Let's keep going. Forgiveness is not saying that what happened was okay. If you were wronged, what happened to you was not okay. That's the whole point. 
What happened when you say, well, forgive. And that's what, that was, that's what happens when we treat forgiveness not as this deeply profound thing, but we treat for, forgiveness as like this care bear, fluffy Christian idea. It, it, it wasn't okay when you're like, well, just forgive those that have wronged you. Usually spoken by people who haven't connected with deep woundedness. Whatever happened to you was not okay. It's not trivial and it matters. Does that make sense? Let's keep going. Forgiveness is not saying that there aren't consequences. And again, sometimes there's small little things and you can forgive and just write it off and somebody blows it and owes you 1,200 bucks and you just, you know, at some point, maybe 1,200 bucks, whatever. Somebody owes you and you can just write it or whatever, like it never even happened. But there are some things that wound people deeply and there are consequences. I have done things in my life that have hurt other people. Many of those people have forgiven me and their forgiveness does not all of a sudden make the pain go away. Do you understand? That just because they forgive me doesn't mean that I don't still have to make restitution or pay for the things that I've done incorrectly. Sometimes it does, but many times it does not. Does that make sense? Let's keep going. Okay, I'm starting to get some buy-in here. Forgiveness is not saying you don't call the police. Forgiveness is not saying you don't call the police. Well, let's actually tag that on with the next one. Forgiveness is not saying that you don't leave the situation. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard about the church universal using the forgiveness card to tell people that have been abused that they need to just go back home and forgive. If he's hitting you, you leave. And, and the church needs to be the place that facilitates that departure done well and in safety. Are we clear? Okay, forgiveness is not to be used. Next, forgiveness is not saying there aren't appropriate boundaries. How many of us have family members, parents, children, siblings, other people, boss, I don't know, whatever. We have people that their behavior is destructive and inappropriate. And we've tried to work through it, but for whatever reason, wherever it, is, wherever it is that they're at in their journey, they are destructive at this moment. Forgiveness is not saying that you don't go to that person and say, I will not be home for Christmas because every time we show up, you talk to me, my spouse, and my children this way, and it's not acceptable, and I will not show up and subject myself to it. So here's the, I will, I will, I will forgive you, and I will seek for a healthy relationship but because of your destructive behavior, here are the boundaries of what appropriate relationship looks like. And when you step out of those, I will remove myself from the situation. Are we preaching? It actually facilitates forgiveness. Because you can't, the Bible says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to its folly. There are some people that are destructive. For whatever reason, there's lots of conversation behind that. You do not just keep, you will never work through forgiveness if you keep submitting yourself to the destructive situation. And so you have to remove yourself or put up appropriate boundaries so that you can work through forgiveness. Okay, so let's close with what forgiveness is, okay? Tim Keller quote. Won't find me quoting Tim Keller very often, but here we go. It's one of my favorite quotes from Tim Keller. Forgiveness means refusing to make them pay for what they did. However, to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do so with all of your being is agony. It's a form of suffering. 
You not only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation, and opportunity, but you now forego the consolation of inflicting the same on them. You are absorbing the debt. The first thing you have to do in the work of forgiveness is end the vengeance cycle. Like they hurt you, so the natural response is to want to lash out and hurt them. First step, not the final step, the first step of forgiveness is just ending that cycle of lashing back out in vengeance. But what's the next step of forgiveness? See, when we talk about forgiveness, we usually just talk about the first step and then we end it. So what is forgiveness? Forgiveness, to work through that first step, is to then realize that somebody has to absorb the debt. There's a parable that Jesus tells about a king who forgives one of his servants 10,000 bags of gold. Remember this parable? Right? And I love to teach on this parable. Can't do it right now. No time. I'm already late. That, when you get to that point, I love to ask people, where does the debt go? And they just say, it just goes away. <laughs> no, it doesn't. The debt doesn't just disappear. Who has to absorb the debt? The king does. It was his 10,000 bags of gold, and he has to say, I'm not getting the 10,000 bags of gold back. I'm going to absorb that debt. This was the teaching on forgiveness that blew the world. And listen to me, I've had some stuff in my life. I've worked through forgiveness. I won't share it here, but I've been through some of this stuff. What helped me was realizing there is a bunch of pain and just ending the vengeance cycle doesn't mean that there's not more work to do. Because you still have to go through, some of us will have to go through therapy you never should have had to have gone through. Do you hear me? What was done to you was not right. It was wrong. It was evil. It was dark. And it was not okay. And yet if you want to be a part of Takun Olam, and you're going to go through the work of forgiveness, you're going to have to absorb some of the wrong that you should have never had to have carried in the first place. But that's the work of forgiveness. Taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person. It hurts terribly. Many people would say it feels like a kind of death. Let's hold that quote right there. Who does this sound like to you? Jesus. One of my favorite passages is in one of my favorite books, the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews says in, in chapters two, three, four, and five, there's a section on how Jesus came to suffer well in order to show us how to suffer. And we all think, what? I thought Jesus came to suffer so that I didn't have to. <clears throat> Prosperity gospel alert. Okay. Jesus did not come to suffer so that you didn't have to. Jesus came to suffer so that you could know how to suffer well. And Hebrews goes on to say, because in that process, we are brought to glory. There is something about engaging the work of tikkun olam to which forgiveness is central because of what it does to us on our insides. And through the process of costly suffering and learning the art of forgiveness, we participate with God, with Jesus in the repairing of the world. And through that process, we are made better people. Brothers and sisters, I follow Jesus more closely because of some of the deep wounds that I've worked through forgiveness in. Because I've come to know Jesus, as Paul says, and the power, I wanna know Christ in his suffering. Insides, not outsides. This is a shallow reward. 
This is a deep reward that brings you to glory. Let's go on. Yes, but it's a death that leads to a resurrection instead of the lifelong living death of bitterness and cynicism. No one just forgives if the evil is serious. Everyone who forgives great evil goes through a death and into a resurrection and experiences nails, blood, sweat, and tears. Everyone who forgives someone bears the other's sins. Forgiveness is always a form of costly suffering. Jesus says, if you want to participate, you're going to pray the prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You better be engaging the work of forgiveness because that's how the kingdom shows up. That's how the kingdom shows up. It doesn't mean that everything's okay, that you go back to all the Christmas parties, that there's not consequences, that you don't call the cops. It does mean, well, let's talk about that. But to do that, let's close our sermon. I'm going to invite our servers to go back eight minutes later than I should have. And they're going to hand out the bread and the juice. And we're going to, we do this every week here at Real Life. We go to the Eucharist table. We celebrate God's forgiveness. We celebrate the good gift. And if you're visiting with us here, we have an open table. This table is open to anybody who wants to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Just hold on to the bread and the juice, and we'll take it together here in just a moment. But let's talk about this, shall we? Implications. First implication. The way of Jesus, as outlined in the Sermon on the Mount, is a way rooted deep in our being, it's not on the surface. It's not an act. And for those of us that have grown up in the Christian world, it's not because we had bad mentors. It's not because we're bad people. It's because it's an incredibly easy default. If you've been raised in a Christian home, it's very easy to learn that you show up at this point, you sing these songs, you raise your hands in the right situation, you show up at these right events, and you can you can act, you can upokritos your way through your spiritual life. It is an easy default for all of us here to have gathered here in this room and all go through the act of worship and to sing about how great it is to be on the right team and forget the entire time the work that we're called to and to not be changed. It's not because we're bad people, it's because it's an easy default. The Sermon on the Mount has confronted people for 2,000 years and will continue to front, confront all of Jesus' followers for the next 2,000 years because it is easy to lean back and kick our feet up and it is hard to engage the work of tikkun olam. Next implication. Jesus is looking for partners, true participants in the bringing of kingdom. Jesus is looking for partners, true participants. One of my favorite Dallas Willard quotes. He said, Jesus is not looking for admirers. He's looking for imitators. It is easy to show up here and be an admirer of Jesus. It's easy. It is much more difficult when we leave those doors at the end of the service today to go be imitators of Jesus. But that is what we're called to. Jesus is looking for participants. He's not looking for spectators. He's not looking for admirers. He's looking for imitators and participants. 
Jesus says, I'm bearing everybody's sins. Why don't you come join me in the world that I am making new every day? Next. This partnership requires the purging of those things we hang on to. This partnership requires the purging of those things we hang on to. This process is called forgiveness. Forgiveness is not something that you decide to do today and then it's done. Forgiveness is a process that we work through because these things are deeply rooted in us like a disease, like a, like a spiritual cancer. And we have to go through this process of purging these things out of our lives so that we can be free to engage the work that Jesus is calling us to do. Where, why is this so important? Because if I don't purge this toxic stuff, this toxic anger and this unforgiveness that's inside of me, if I don't purge that, what does it fester into? Anxiety. And where, what does Jesus talk about next in the Sermon on the Mount? Worry. And if I'm full of anxiety and worry about what others do and what others have done to me, what is the next thing that Jesus talks about? Judging others. Do you see Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? It's not just a bunch of like psh, 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 teachings. It's this is how you read Torah and this is how you become the people that we're trying to become. And if you don't do this work, it gets in the way of everything else that God's gonna call you to. We have to go through this process if we wanna participate in the work of Jesus. Well, we can participate in the work of religion all day long. If you wanna participate in the work of Jesus, this will be central. Next, last. One of all, of all the things forgiveness is not, of all the things that forgiveness is not, and we went through a few of them, of all the things that forgiveness is not, it is the opportunity to let the future be full of potential impossibility undefined by the past. Can I ask you a really difficult question? What does forgiveness do? Don't answer that. What does forgiveness do? I like that answer. Forgiveness does nothing about the past. Forgiveness doesn't make your hurts go away. Like we think about Jesus, we're like, God forgiving us, Jesus forgiving us, and we, we act like it like changes our past. It doesn't change our past. Our past is unchanged. The past can't be changed. Ask the people that you've hurt. Does that make sense? That forgiveness doesn't change the past. What forgiveness does is it changes the future. Forgiveness says, of all the wrongs that have been committed, they don't have to define what you become next. That's what forgiveness does. That's why it's still okay to call the cops. It's still okay to put up boundaries. It's still okay to do all those things. And it's still essential to work through forgiveness because forgiveness says that thing that happened to me, that thing that I, I participated in, whatever it is, it doesn't have to define the person that I become in the years to come. Right. Forgiveness releases your potential and the potential of God to work in those that have wronged you. Forgiveness unlocks possibility and potential in our futures. That is why what you hold in your hand is so important. Remember the guy in the parable, 10,000 bags of gold guy? He walks out of the presence of the king and he grabs another person that owes him a mere three months salary and he grabs him by the throat and starts to choke him and says, pay me back. And the king calls him back in and says, you wicked servant. Listen to me. If you come to this table and you engage in the work of God's forgiveness in your life, if you come here and taste of the bread and the juice and you sing with tears streaming down your cheeks of how God has unlocked your future, 
and you do not participate in unlocking the futures of others, you wicked, lazy servant. This has to change us. We have been forgiven. We are invited to forgive. That night, Jesus took a piece of bread. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body. And when you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus. Later on in the meal, he took the cup. He passed it amongst his disciples. He said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's drink to forgiveness. Father God, my prayer today is that you would help us do our part. We know that you do your part. We know this isn't all about us and our willpower and our strength. We, we know it's your strength. It's the work of your spirit. It's your power breathing through us. We know that. But there's also a part that is our part to own, to surrender to, to be open to, to participate in. You call us to that. And so my prayer would be that it would be that you would help us to participate in the work of Tikkun Olam, that you would change us, that you would make us new. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.